Turn to Ephesians 4, and while you're turning there, I apologize, because I should have mentioned at the top of service, we will not be celebrating communion this morning. We normally do the first Sunday of the month, but Robbie Nichols is coming to teach next weekend, and I thought I would give him the opportunity uh, to lead us in the Lord's table. I'm going to be here, Lord willing, but Ann and I will just be getting back late Saturday from the marriage conference in Oklahoma. So rather than strive to make sure that I have something, I just thought it would be a good time for Robbie and Diane to bless us with their gifts and fellowship with us. But this morning, Ephesians chapter 4. We began the chapter last week, and with it we began the second major chapter, I'm sorry, second major section of the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul's been talking to us about who we are in Christ. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's going to talk to us about how we are to live for Christ. And, and we'd gotten a couple verses in. We'd read together Ephesians 4, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, Paul speaking, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. And that's kind of where we left off. I mean, we kept reading after that, but we spent most of our time last week talking about lowliness and gentleness there in verse 2. Especially gentleness. And, and we reminded ourselves what Paul is saying in verse 2 is just an extension, sort of a, an application of what he's been saying for the last three chapters, which is that church is a really big tent. Church is a collection of really different people. Jew and Gentile, Paul says. Do you believe that? Because in his mind, that was as different as two people could be. And, and elsewhere, he says Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, people of all kinds from all different backgrounds. And he's getting ready to tell us, starting in verse 7, people with all kinds of, of gifting and different calling, all different parts to play in this crazy family we call the body of Christ. And so, Paul said, mindful of how different we are, he said, be gentle to each other. Find grace for each other. Let your differences and your diversity be a source of strength rather than the rock in your shoe, that constant nagging irritation. Recognize, Paul is saying, the person in church who most annoys you is probably not a messenger of Satan sent to buffet you. I mean, it's possible. But more likely, it's someone that God has put in your life to grow you, to stretch you, to sanctify you, to shape you more into his image. God called us together, Paul's been saying, so we could teach each other grace. That, that, that was verses 1 and 2, essentially. Verses 1 and 2, building on what he said in chapters 1 and 2, and especially chapter 3. God has called this unique group of people together. He's talking to us, and he's saying God has brought us together, among other reasons, to teach each other grace. But for that to happen, Paul goes on in verse 3, we need to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We need to pursue unity actively. It doesn't happen by spontaneous combustion. We need to not run away from our differences. We need to not shy away from conflict. We need to make one anotherness our priority. Remembering, verse 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in, one hope of your calling. 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Long story less long, whatever our differences, Paul is saying, whatever things that we can point at that differentiate us, that distinguish us from each other, those things are smaller, less significant, less important than the things that unite us than the fact that together we're the family of God. That was last week. But this week, we, we, we tumble into a question that's sort of unavoidable, given what we talked about last week. Does this mean that the different denominations and sects and movements and tribes and families within the body of Christ are bad? Because Paul says one and one and one and one. Compare that to the 45,000, by some counts, different denominations with different beliefs and customs and convictions and articles of faith. Did Paul just say that's bad? Did he just call that sin? It's a really good question. And some of you asked me that really good question last week after the message, and my answer was, yeah, that's a good question. Not because I was trying to duck it, but because I mean it. It's a really important question, and and, and so it's one that I feel led to dig into this morning. Is all denominationalism always bad? Okay, I just tipped my hand. You You can tell by the way I'm phrasing the question. I'm not ready to say yes. I think it's a good question. I don't think it has an easy answer. And, 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 and at least some of you are ready to shout, how can it not be? Did you read what you were just reading? <laughs> Paul just said we're supposed to be one body, spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, God. How can you say, Patrick, that denominations don't divide and Jesus seeks to unite? Division in the body of Christ is bad. Bad. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> I mean, how can we not? But is it maybe possible to have distinctions that don't automatically translate into divisions? I want to take some time this morning and get a handle on what Paul is saying, on on what God is saying on this subject, because it is so important. Playing my cards face up, like I haven't been already, letting you know where we're headed, three things I want to explore this morning. One, why I don't think that tribes denominations are automatically always unbiblical. Second thing, I want to look at at least a couple of ways that they can easily become very unbiblical. Because those of you who are ready to pound on a table, except that you don't have a table, so you just don't know what to do, you're not pointing at nothing, and I think you know that. Third thing I want to look at, how can a tribe that is a tribe like ours stay Biblical, stay on the right side of the line. Avoid becoming everything that Paul just warned us about. Let's dive in. Why, why, how, how can you make a biblical argument that tribes are not bad? I'm using tribe kind of as a generic catch-all for subsets of the family of God. Tribe, not denomination, because all denominations are tribes, not all tribes are denominations. They're, denominations are... Uh, Presbyterian Church of America, Southern Baptist Convention, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. But there are, are movements like Calvary, like Vineyard, like Acts 29, 
that are not denominations. What's the difference? Denomination implies central governance. Applies that someone somewhere has some authority over the churches that are part of that group. Unlike a movement like Calvary where every church is independent. And none of that is really central to the question. It's just I, I don't want terminology to be a distraction as we get into the question. And the question is, is identifying with a particular tribe or as a particular tribe consistent with the word or contrary to the word? I've already said, I think it can be consistent with the word. I think affiliation with a tribe can be helpful and practical and, yes, biblical. Of course you do, Patrick. You affiliate with Calvary Chapel. There's a dove on the wall behind you. Got the whole Calvary blueprint on the hall outside. Of course that's what you think. Except, hang on, let's get our, our chickens and our eggs straight. I affiliate with Calvary Chapel because I see that's what the Bible teaches. Calvary agrees with, with me, with my study, with my conviction. I don't believe anything because Calvary tells me I'm supposed to. And, and neither should you, by the way. Acts 17, 11, receive the word with all readiness of mind, but search the scriptures and see if what comes across this pulpit is true. I think the Bible teaches that a certain amount of differentiation in the body of Christ is inevitable. So my concern is less about whether we align with a larger tribe or movement, but how we do that. How do you get that from what Paul just said? I, I don't, necessarily. But let's consider what else the Bible says. First of all, the Bible clearly teaches, in addition to being part of the church universal, every one of us is called to join and engage with and commit to a local fellowship, a place where we can be known, a place where we can use our gifts, a place where we can serve and be held accountable and love and be loved, and we covered all of that a few weeks ago. But if you remember that, right there, we have an element of distinction. There's, there's a degree of differentiation that comes with being part of this local fellowship as opposed to that local fellowship. There's some differentiation that comes with being part of this family of believers and not that family of believers. My point is the fact that, that Scripture commands us to be part of a local fellowship means that some differentiation, by definition, is not unbiblical. It can't be because the Bible says to do it. But is it biblical to differentiate ourselves not based on geography or location, but on the basis of doctrine or style or philosophy of ministry? I want to be really careful how I answer this. Is it ideal to differentiate ourselves that way? Probably not. In an ideal world, probably not. But we don't live in an ideal world. We live in a fallen world. We live in a badly broken world. And one of the things we see over and over in Scripture is that in this fallen world, we exist, we the church, we the family of God, we dwell between the already and the not yet. We've already been saved, those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, those of us who have said yes to the gospel, those of us 
who, who reckoned ourselves sinners, who acknowledged our guilt and said, wow, that, that unholiness, that guilt is going to separate me from the God who created me forever because crime requires punishment. Except Jesus, who was God, became man and bore the guilt in his body for all of us. Jesus, fully man and fully God, died on the cross to pay the price for my sin and your sin and everybody's sin. And that that payment, that ransom, takes effect when I say yes. That free gift of salvation benefits me when I accept it. And for those of us who have, we have been saved. We've been rescued out of our sin. We've been rescued from hell, quite literally. And one day we will be saved in another dimension. We will be translated into glorified bodies and dwell with God forever. But in between the already and the not yet is the present tense of our salvation. We've been saved and we will be saved, but... Even now, we're in the process of being saved, of being made more like Jesus. And in this place of being saved, sanctified, refined, perfected, pick your verb, in this state of being justified but not yet glorified, we don't have perfect knowledge of God. We don't have perfect visibility of the things of God. We don't have a full and complete understanding of the Word of God. And Scripture says so again and again. We see in a mirror dimly, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. But then face to face, with our glorified bodies, we'll see things that we're not equipped to perceive or understand now. Now I know in part, Paul says, but then, well then I'll really know, even as as now I'm known. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We don't begin to grasp the enormity of God's plans. Beloved, now we're children of God. Now on the other side of the cross, if we've said yes to the cross, we're children of God. But even for us, it has not been revealed, 1 John 3.2, what we shall be. We know that when he's revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But what that means, everything that implies, we can only begin to grasp. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans 8.18. Which shall be revealed, but hasn't yet. I could keep going, but I think you get the point. Our knowledge and understanding of God, our comprehension of the things of God and the Word of God is incomplete at best. And that's black letter scripture. That's nothing but biblical. That is crystal clear in God's Word. That much is. If that wasn't true, we wouldn't be having this conversation. If our knowledge and understanding were perfect and complete, then then perfect and complete unity in doctrine and dogma and interpretation and application would be non-negotiable. It would be absolutely imperative, and we'd all know it because we'd have perfect understanding. But we don't. We're all looking at the same word, but we're looking through, through, through dirty glasses. Glasses that we wore when we were painting. Can't, can't make out all of the details through them. 
And yeah, the word is interpreted, it's illuminated for us by God the Holy Spirit, who's perfect in all of his ways. But between that already and that not yet, none of us is perfectly yielded to the Holy Spirit. So as a result, even even if we factor out sin and pride and jealousy and ambition and, and a lot of the negative qualities that we associate with tribes and denominations, we're still going to be left with big gaps in our understanding, big differences in our conviction, variations of interpretation within Jesus-loving, God-worshipping, Spirit-filled believers. So I think what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4 has less to do with denying those differences, pretending that they don't exist. I think it has more to do with navigating those differences. Loving one another really, really well, despite those differences. Because Paul is clearly saying we need to pursue unity. And he's saying that we need to pursue unity despite differences. He's already talked about differences in culture, gender, wealth, status. He's going to go on to talk about the differences that we have to overcome in different uh, gifting and calling in ministry. But I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that by extension he's urging unity despite differences that might emerge in doctrine or conviction or style or philosophy. I grant you he doesn't come out and say it. But in other letters, he certainly acknowledges that different believers are going to have different convictions. He talks a lot about diet as an example. But you and I are perfectly comfortable taking the things that Paul says about Christian liberty in regard to what we eat and extending them to things like drinking alcohol or piercings or tattoos or music or entertainment. Paul writes to the Galatians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Romans, Corinthians, and in and, 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 and all of those letters, he assumes differences of conviction are inevitable despite God's word among the body of Christ. And, and, and so he writes, he spends a lot of ink. He takes up a lot of space telling us, teaching us how to navigate those differences. And he acknowledges that despite our best efforts here in this world, this broken, fallen world, perfect unity might not be possible. He says to the Romans, Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. If it's possible, it might not be. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace, Romans 14, 19. Pursue peace. You might not catch it. Sometimes we're not able to achieve unity. And the way that Paul phrases those verses, he gets that. He knows sometimes we're not. He's experienced that. He knows that sometimes selfishness, pride, jealousy, ambition gets in the way. And he knows sometimes it's just life in a fallen world. Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas couldn't reconcile their difference over John Mark. One wanted him to come, one wanted to leave him behind. And their, their, their contention, we read, got sharp. It was pointed, it was powerful, it was persistent. It wasn't going away. And so because they couldn't come to unity, Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways. They both continued ministry, just not with each other. 
And the Bible conspicuously does not blame either one of them. The Bible doesn't assign fault. The Bible doesn't criticize Paul or Barnabas. It just says it happened. And I don't think it's self-fulfilling prophecy to say that other differences are going to happen. Disagreements over doctrine and conviction and priorities and all kinds of things are going to emerge. It's inevitable. And, and denying that? Ignoring those differences, pretending I don't see them, pretending to, to, that they don't, that, that's what wars with unity. Sooner or later, if we're doing church the way that Paul is telling us to, if we're really living in community, worshiping together, fellowshipping together, doing life as family, in a fallen world, sooner or later, things that are really important to us are going to be a sticking point but, but between one or more of us. They just are. An easy example, not the best example, but a really easy example is music. I have friends who deeply, passionately believe the only songs would, that we should be singing in church are the songs that we find in the book of Psalms. Sung as such, not modern arrangements, the songs as David and others wrote them. I've got other friends who believe that music in church should be vocal and only vocal and not instrumental ever. I've got other friends, still different friends, who believe that piano and organ is okay, but guitar isn't, and drums, no, 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 no. <laughs> Absolutely not. And the thing is, we can visit one another's congregations and, and worship together on occasion. But if we were to try to set aside our various convictions and worship together with one voice, with one heart, week over week, if, if, if I go there, I'm going to feel like something is missing. If they come here, they're going to feel like something is very, very wrong. If our goal is unity and worship, it makes sense to worship with people who share our convictions about worship. Another easy example is dress. I have friends who cannot, in good conscience, worship with us at Calvary Chapel. And they've told me. And they've told me why. It's because of how we dress. In their mind, to worship is to honor God, and they're not wrong. The word means worship, to ascribe worth. To them, that means giving God our best, including our best clothes, our Sunday best. We think, most of us at least, that the clear teaching of Scripture is that God is more concerned on, with what's going on on the inside than the outside. That the, the difference between formal and informal is not the same as the difference between reverent and irreverent, but Godly people disagree. And in the case of the family I'm thinking of, they've tried. They've come here for a while, a couple different times, and they, 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 they couldn't get comfortable. They couldn't worship God in spirit and in truth because they couldn't get past the fact that I was comfortable. <laughs> my untucked shirt and my blue jeans. But, you know, when I visit a church that they would be comfortable in, I get distracted and I have a hard time worshiping because I, I can't get past the feeling I'm among the Pharisees. <laughs> More concerned with the external than the internal, which, which, which is completely unfair and untrue. And, 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 you know, God forgive me for thinking that about my brothers and sisters in Christ, but that's the point. If the goal is unity and worship, it's not sinful to seek out people 
who share our convictions about worship, people with whom we can worship with, with, with in spirit and in truth. Now, now, both of those examples we might file under style. Style of ministry as opposed to substantive doctrine. But I think the point still stands. I think if we take those examples in temp- as templates, we could easily extend them into other areas, including areas of doctrine. Salvation. Is salvation a function of predestination? Is it a function of free will? Are we drawn by irresistible grace? What about gifts of the Spirit? Do they still operate the same way today that they did in the book of Acts? Is anything different? Is all of it different? End times. When and how does Jesus return and what happens first? Church leadership. How should we be organized? How should church governance be structured? Liberty. What lines do we need to draw? What rules of engagement do we need to establish for for the good and the safety of the body? Those those are probably the top five things that Christians disagree about. Based on everything I've read, those are the doctrinal issues that are cited when tribes split or, or when new tribes suddenly spring up in an area that already has a lot of churches. Those are the reasons. Well, there isn't a church that believes this, that teaches this, that agrees about that. And it makes sense. It makes sense that for the sake of pursuing unity and avoiding disunity, people might choose to worship and fellowship and do life together with believers who aren't going to constantly disagree over those really important issues. I quoted Romans 14, 19 earlier. Pursue the things that make for peace, Paul says. In the rest of that passage, Paul says emphatically, part of that, part of pursuing peace, part of seeking after unity, is not stumbling one another. And sometimes that leaves us with a choice. Do I not talk about a really important belief? Do I stuff down my passion for a a subject, for a a topic? Or, Or... do I find a place where I can talk freely about the things of God? And that, that seems biblical, doesn't it? I think of Abraham and Lot in Genesis 13. Our young men's study was, was talking about Abraham and Lot yesterday. I mean, it's a wonderful study. Abraham and Lot, you, you remember, they had a real issue between them. The land couldn't support both of their families, and their servants were quarreling all the time. So Abram and Lot agreed to separate. And Abram in particular was committed to separating graciously. He said, pick, out, pick whatever way you want to go. You go north, I'll go south. You go east, I'll go west. You go first, and I'll go the other way. They separated graciously. And that's, that's the key word. Graciously, over relating to grace. They separated in a way that protected the relationship. They were still friends. More than friends, they were still family. The Bible calls them brothers Four or five times, even though the, the biological relationship was uncle and nephew. They saw each other as brothers, as the, and then they stayed brothers after they separated. Even after Lot made what, what we might say was a bad choice to go hang out in Sodom, even, even after he made a choice that Abram would not have made, when Lot was in trouble, Genesis 14 when he and his family are taken captive by an invading army, Abraham still came, the Bible said, to the aid of his brother. Calls him that twice in one passage. Even though they separated, Abram came to his brother in force and in love and in the name of the Lord. 
See, that's an example of godly separation without division. And maybe the reason we're hyped on this subject, maybe the reason we get touchy talking about this is that that's the relationship we don't see a lot of the time. That's the relationship we don't see between tribes that cleave or, or, or even between different fellowships within the same tribe. Instead of the lowliness and gentleness that Abram exemplified, we're more used to seeing what? Jealousy? Resentment? Condemnation? Bitterness? Why? What, why how, how does it happen? Point number two, how do tribes go astray? And, and how do they become unbiblical in, in, in their distinction and their differentiation? You know, it's not about that they do, it's how they do. And I'm going to cut to the, cho- uh, cut to the chase and suggest that most of the time, I don't think it actually has very much to do with doctrine. Sometimes it does. Patrick, you're contradicting yourself. You just said that there were these five reasons. Yeah, I, I know. Churches splitting, movements cleaving are generally attributed to one or more doctrinal differences, salvation, gifts, end times, government, liberty. Those are usually the reasons cited. And sometimes it's even true. But other times, the separation is attributed to those things, and it's actually about people and personalities and ambitions and agendas. And the reason that's cited probably wasn't an issue until some other conflict, some interpersonal tension arose. Until people decided that for whatever reason, they couldn't, li- they, they couldn't work together, they didn't like each other, they couldn't stand each other. You're standing in the way of me. You're, stand- you're getting in the way of me. But instead of giving each other the, you know, the right fist of fellowship, <laughs> followed by the left hook of encouragement, <laughs> which, which, which could keep them from doing the ministry that they want to do somewhere else, they invent spiritual-sounding reasons to separate. It's easier to say, you know, I've decided that I'm a Calvinist than it is to say, yeah, I'm hanging on to bitterness that I don't want to deal with. It's easier to say, I don't really believe in the rapture than it is to say, I'm jealous of the ministry that somebody else gets to do. It's easier to say, I don't think a church should be led by a pastor than it is to say, the pastor made a decision that I don't like. So we need to put things to a congregational vote. Sometimes gracious separation happens. I think about when Vineyard separated from Calvary. And, and completely, you know, accidentally, if you believe in that, we, we sang, I think, two Vineyard songs this morning. It was before my time, but, but by all accounts, that was a reasonably gracious separation. Leaders in Calvary and Vineyard both looked at the collective flock and said, yeah, we've got sort of two epicenters of really different conviction around spiritual gifts. One much more dramatic and demonstrative, one much more conservative. So they said, let's have two tribes so that it's not an ongoing debate. Let's, let's have two tribes to remove the, the ongoing underlying contention. It can be done graciously. On the other hand, I think of two pastors that I knew in another part of the country two brothers who served together who managed to really hurt each other. Then they didn't do it on purpose. They're just two really different guys who thought differently, spoke differently, 
They, they thought and talked in different ways, and they ended up a little wounded and a lot bitter. So one goes off to, to plant a, a, a different church, but not far from the church where he had previously served, close enough that people inevitably felt like they needed to choose. They weren't sure what they were choosing between, because both sides said, well, we couldn't see eye to eye on certain doctrines. But if you ask this guy, it was one doctrine, and if you ask this guy, it was another doctrine. They didn't get their story straight because they weren't talking to each other. They were just mad at each other, hurt by each other. But rather than face that, rather than acknowledge it and let God deal with it, they walked away. They invented a spiritual-sounding cover story that nobody believed. (laughs) And they let the bitterness fester. Eventually, I think they worked it out. But for a long time, they just sort of stared at each other across town out of their respective church windows, feeling hurt, growing bitter, feeling justified because of, you know, what he... And not really paying attention to how many people were also being caught up in this, dragged into this hurt because of it. And both of those fellowships languished for a long time until one of them reached out and they reconciled because God's not going to honor a fellowship founded on a lie. See, those are the kind of divisions that Paul's warning against, and it's not hard to spot them. Spirit-led separation is going to Smell like the Spirit. It's going to evidence the fragrance of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness. Gracious separation will overflow grace. Carnal separation is going to overflow self. Something that's a work of the flesh is going to look like flesh. Paul tells us how to spot it. Hatred, contention, jealousy, outbursts, selfishness, ambition, dissension. If that's at the root of the disagreement, or if that's surrounding it and characterizing it, we need to deal with it. Not ignore it, not run away from it. Bring it to the Lord. And who knows, after that we might still end up deciding to separate, but that can't be the reason we separate, and it can't be the way that we separate. For all the reasons that Paul gives us here in Ephesians and a lot of other places, it's not God-honoring. It's not gospel embodying. They'll know that you're my disciples, Jesus says, John 13, 35. They'll know that you're disciples by your love for one another. We can't get through a week in Ephesians without quoting that verse. I think Paul must have had it on his heart as he was writing this letter. They'll know that we're Christians by our love. If that's true, and Jesus just said it is, then what does the world know? If they'll know that we're Christians by our love, what does the world know? What do they see? What do they conclude if they don't see love? I was reminded this week of an interview that Mahatma Gandhi gave years ago, obviously. He was asked what he thought the biggest obstacle to the gospel was in Asia. What what is the biggest hindrance to the spread of Christianity in in India. And he thought for a moment, and then he said, Christians. When we hide behind doctrinal disputes or other spiritual-sounding explanations to avoid hard conversations, when when we use doctrine as an excuse to not pursue godly reconciliation, that's not biblical. And it's not fruitful in in, in any good sense of the word. 
Here's what's also not biblical. Placing doctrinal disputes above the gospel. Rejecting unity in greater things because we can't see eye to eye in lesser things. Tribes within the body of Christ are probably inevitable, and I think Paul would agree that they're sometimes helpful if we view them as different branches of the same family, same union, different local kind of a thing. Tribes can be helpful. And if we find each other for the right reasons and love each other the right way, I think it's biblical. Tribes can be helpful and biblical. Tribalism is not helpful or biblical. What's tribalism? Tribalism is when tribe becomes more important than all the other things. When the only conversation I'm interested in having is how my tribe's better than your tribe. Our way's better than your way. We're right, you're wrong. You're probably not even saved because if you were, you'd agree with me. That's when we need to go back to Paul's words at the beginning of our chapter and remind ourselves there's one body and one spirit. One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. There are some things that are, in fact, not negotiable. There are things that are beyond dispute, beyond disagreement in the body of Christ. Jesus is God. Jesus died for our sin. Jesus rose from the dead. We're saved by grace through faith. The Bible is the Word of God. Those doctrines and and others like them, those doctrines that are essential for salvation, are what separates a tribe within the body of Christ from a cult. Agreement on those things is non-negotiable if we want to call ourselves Christians. And, 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 And that pushes off, that pushes out some of the groups that you might have been thinking, well, does that mean they're... Do we have to find unity with, not if they don't agree on those essential non-negotiable doctrines, those, those things required of orthodoxy. Those are the things we have to agree on. Those are the things that define the family of God. Those are the things that, that comprise the gospel that saves us. The gospel that defines us and the gospel that sends us out into the world to tell them about Jesus. Nothing else is as important. Which means if I'm spending more time trying to convince believers that it's okay to have a guitar on the stage than telling believers they're not okay without Jesus, doing it wrong. If I'm more passionate about getting Christians to believe in the rapture than trying to get non-Christians to hear the gospel, I've missed it. If I can't be part of a crusade with Presbyterians because they're Calvinist, or do outreach with assemblies because they've got different convictions about women in ministry, or a a food ministry with Lutherans because they share the gospel in a different way, I've lost my way. Because in saying those things, I'm saying non-essential doctrines are more important than salvation. And they can't be. J.C. Ryle an Anglican evangelist from the 19th century, said there's something sadly wrong when it's more important to us whether others are a part of our denomination rather than whether they repent of sin, believe on Christ, and live holy lives. And he's exactly right. That's not just his opinion. That's Paul's declaration, 1 Corinthians 2.2. I determined not to know anything among you except Christ and him crucified. Obviously, Paul knew other things. And he taught other things. What's he saying? 
He's saying he was determined to not let any other thing eclipse the priority of the gospel, and neither should we. Instead, we should be willing to be like Paul and set aside our identity in anything other than the gospel for the sake of the gospel. Becoming, 1 Corinthians 9, all things to all men. Paul says, hey, to the Jew I'll be a Jew, to the Greek a Greek. I'm going to be servant of all whatever it takes that by any means I might save some. We're not here to win people to Calvary Chapel or, 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 or any other set of beliefs or convictions. We're here to win people to Christ. And doctrine doesn't do that. Doctrine doesn't win people to Christ. Philosophy of ministry doesn't win people to Christ. The gospel wins people to Christ. Especially when it's spoken with the heart of Christ. Especially when it's spoken in love. Okay, Patrick, if that's the case, then why do we ever talk about anything else? Paul said that he determined not to know anything except Christ and him crucified. Why do we not set everything that's not Christ and him crucified aside? And not talk about all of the stuff that Christians disagree about. If we didn't talk about it, we wouldn't argue about it, we wouldn't have disagreements, we could be one big happy. So let's just talk about the word and Jesus and the cross and forgiveness and resurrection and grace and just, just, just stay there. The thing is we can't. Because God has given us things beyond the gospel. He's given us the entirety of his word and he's told us in his word that all of his word, 2 Timothy 3.15, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction of righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the Holy Spirit telling us. Even if we don't completely understand, even if we all don't entirely agree, we're called to pursue understanding, and we're called to teach our best understanding with humility to the body of Christ. So that we can do the ministry that God has called us to. So that we can spread the gospel. That's the mission of the church. All I wish to say, I don't think it's sin to have convictions. In obedience to God, my, my Calvary brothers and I have convictions about the word of God teaches. We've, we find ourselves in agreement on certain distinctives, which is a weird way to put it. But things that make us distinct besides the dove on the wall when it comes to salvation we we observe the bible teaches both predestination and free will and, and so we do when it comes to gifts of the spirit there's nothing in scripture that says that they don't continue but there is teaching in scripture teaching from paul that says that the gifts are to be exercised uh, decently and in order without confusion when it comes to end times, we're premillennial and we're pre-tribulational. When it comes to leadership, we believe that the church is led by a pastor, held accountable by a board, and supported by elders. When it comes to liberty, we think that grace changes everything. We're also committed to verse-by-verse -verse teaching that, that leads us to those convictions. And there are more distinctives. Those are the ones relevant for our conversation this morning. The funny thing is, though, I know people in our fellowship, and I'm not talking about visitors, I'm talking about long-term, plugged-in members of the family who consider themselves part of the family, even though they strongly disagree with one or more of the things that I just said. We've got brothers and sisters here who, who lean towards 
reform and aren't sure that irresistible grace isn't a thing. Brothers and sisters who can't buy into the rapture. Who distrust any government that's led by a senior pastor. Who don't see the gifts of the Spirit operate the way that we read about in the book of Acts. I love that. I count that as a win. I, I, I think it's a huge win. Because it testifies that we can disagree without being disagreeable. We don't have to be porcupines making many fine points, but no one wants to get close to us. <laughs> and yes, some people might not be able to find unity with us, but Lord willing, it won't be because they didn't feel love here. And, and that right there is the answer to our third question. What's necessary for a tribe to be a tribe and stay between the lines? What's necessary for a tribe to, to be a tribe and reap the benefits of being a tribe while remaining biblical? Love. Love. That's why I think, you know, as, as useful as the Calvary distinctives are, you know, those theological convictions that make our tribe our tribe, the most important thing that we need to cling to and and remember and, 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 and keep close to our hearts is Calvary's original charter, their original vision statement from back in the 60s. Calvary Chapel has been formed as a fellowship of believers under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our supreme desire is to know Christ and be conformed to his image by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are not a denominational church, nor are we opposed to denominations as such only to their overemphasis on doctrinal differences that have led to division within the body of Christ. We believe the only true basis of Christian fellowship is Christ's agape love, which is greater than any differences we possess and without which we have no right to claim ourselves Christians. And that's everything Paul is saying, right? That's everything that Paul meant when he said to us, walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. We have beliefs and convictions, and it's no sense pretending that we don't, and there's no point in trying not to. We don't need to apologize for them, but none are as important as the gospel, and none is as powerful as love. How do we reap the advantages of being a tribe without trampling on Paul's call to unity? Under the lordship of Jesus Christ, in obedience to the gospel, we speak the truth in love. We speak it to our brothers and sisters, and we speak it to the lost and dying world. We speak the truth in love. Are we, are we, are we the only tribe that believes that or practices that? Of course not. We are not unique in that regard. Do we do a better job than anybody else of living it out? No. Sometimes we don't even do a good job of living it out. But it should always be our goal, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, to bear with one another in love, whatever our affiliations, and endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, mindful that there is one body and one spirit, just as we were called in one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
one God who is Father of all, above all and through all and in us all. By God's grace. Yes and amen. Lord, teach us unity. Not cheap unity, not artificial unity, feigned unity, plastic manufactured pretend unity, genuine, spirit-breathed, according with Scripture, born of your heart, unity in your family, under your headship, manifesting your love.